1 Corinthians chapter 6 uh, from verse 1. If any of you have a dispute with, an, with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. Or do you not know that the wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What can seem to be a little issue can sometimes be a symptom of a much bigger problem. Now, as I say those words, you probably know of experience in your life where that principle has worked out. Maybe one uh, that might come to mind is how you evaluate a crack in the wall of a house. Some cracks shouldn't worry us at all. And some cracks are very, very serious. And it's an important skill to identify the cracks that are serious and the others that aren't. And it's the same in church life together. There are some problems that are serious and others that aren't. And in our passage this evening in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul addresses a problem in the Corinthian church that perhaps as you heard it read, you thought that maybe sounds like quite a small minor issue. But actually, Paul shows as we work through the passage that this issue indicates a number of deeper and bigger problems in the life of the church. So the issue that Paul speaks about is civil lawsuits among believers. And as we think of that, why is Paul concerned about this? Why is this so very important to Paul? He, 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 he speaks in a way uh, which is very strong in this chapter about the significance of this. And he speaks of it in this way because big issues are at stake for God's people in terms of the motivation behind these lawsuits and why that's wrong. And also the church's response to the lawsuits and how they were dealing with them together. As we begin to work through this passage, we need to be clear from the beginning what kinds of legal issues that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And the text gives us, uh, makes that very clear. If you look down at verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul speaks of a dispute with another. And then at the end of verse 2, he talks about trivial cases. So the kinds of situations that Paul is speaking about here and where the principles apply are not criminal matters, not situations where someone has committed the wrong, where the state should be involved. And this passage doesn't teach that we should never involve the authorities 
in the things that happen in life of the church. If evil is done, such as physical abuse or fraud, then it's right that we go to the authorities. Romans 13 would teach us that God has given the state a legitimate role in bringing justice in those kinds of situations. But that is not the issue in 1 Corinthians 6. What's going on here is a civil dispute between two Christians, which could have been resolved through mediation within the church. And instead of pursuing that route, they had chosen to bring that conflict into the civil courts. And Paul is very clear that that is not the right thing to do as the Lord's people. We see something of how strongly he feels us and how strongly we should hear this if we observe in verse 1 that he says there, if any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare to take it before the ungodly? That's a very strong way of speaking, isn't it? Do you dare to do this? And indeed, in the Greek and the original, Paul begins with that statement, you dare one of you who has a grievance against another, to bring it for judgment before the unrighteous. So Paul says this is really serious that we would bring a civil matter of a, a dispute that could be resolved through mediation with one another into the courts in that sense. And it matters because in doing so, we deny three things about who we are as God's people. I'm not aware of any legal cases going on within the church family that are before a civil court in that sense. And indeed, I don't know that going on in another church family. But we do need to know what we should do when we find ourselves perhaps in a situation where we might wonder if that would be an appropriate course of action so we know how to respond. And alongside that, what we find in this passage is that Paul teaches key principles for our life together with wider application. And that's what we find as we go through 1 Corinthians, isn't it? It's a church with all kinds of difficult situations, and perhaps we don't have those exact same problems, but the principles that Paul uses to address those problems have wide application to our lives as the Lord's people. So we're going to see this evening, I don't have a PowerPoint, we're going to see three reasons why it's wrong to bring a lawsuit against another Christian like this. And as we see them, we'll see wider application. And the first is, it's wrong because you are equipped to deal with these problems within the church. That's Paul's first point. It's wrong because you are equipped to deal with these problems within the church. That's verses 1 through to 5. Now, a few years ago, a retired pastor drew alongside me to help me grow in my preaching because he'd noticed that I got into a habit that wasn't helpful in my communication. Um, He'd spotted that I was using lots of rhetorical questions when I was preaching. And indeed, um, he had gone back and listened to a message and found that in just a few minutes, I'd used no less than 20 rhetorical questions. Now, I think I've got better at that. Do tell me afterwards if I'm improved in this way. Um, But he spoke to me because he knew the power of a rhetorical question, of how striking that can be. But if you overuse it, well, it becomes ineffective and annoying to the congregation. And that's not good. And Paul here uh, uses the power of a rhetorical question. In fact, I think there are at least nine in the whole passage. But in particular, in the first five verses, there are three that we need to highlight 
And they all highlight how God has equipped them as a church family to deal with this kind of issue within the fellowship. So you see one there in verse 2. He says, Do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if we are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? There, Paul is pointing to something Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 28, where he said, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, sits on his glorious throne in the new creation, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Then in similar thought is in 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12, where in that well-known phrase from Paul, you have, if you died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. So God's people will judge, which means we will rule with Christ over the world in the new creation. And the logic is, if God has called us to that and equipped us for that, then we're able to deal with these things in the life of the church together. The similar argument is made in verse 3 with reference to the angels. Do you not know, another rhetorical question, that we will judge the angels? How much more the things of this life? The new creation will include the angels, and our rule and authority will be over the angels too in that sense. And then he comes to a third rhetorical question in verse 5, where he says then, Is it possible there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? So he presses it home with another rhetorical question. Now, when people see Paul doing this, some people would want to say that the reason behind Paul's counsel to resolve the issues in the church together rather than going to the courts was because the legal, civil legal system in Corinth was so corrupt and it was so easy to manipulate it that they shouldn't go that route. So there's something specific about the Corinthian legal system. And it wasn't a perfect system and money certainly helped to strengthen your case in Corinth. But that's not the heart of the issue for Paul. Even if they had the best legal system in the world in Corinth, he still would have challenged their approach. Because his point is not about the the competency of the Corinthian legal system. His point is about the competency of the church family. And the way in which God has equipped them to work through these things together. God has made the church wise enough to deal with these matters. Now why is that? Well, the people of God have the word of God. And the people of God have the spirit of God. And so, as we apply God's wisdom from his word to these areas of our lives, the solutions we come to will be better than those of an unbelieving but wise and competent civil magistrate. Now, why is that? Well, it's because we can speak about things that a civil magistrate can't. We can speak to one another about sin that might be behind and is, is nearly always behind some of those disagreements. We can talk to one another about heart change, about the gospel and how that affects our lives together. 
The people of God have the ethics of the kingdom and the gospel changes how we deal with conflict with one another. And friends, that means that as we do that, that brings us to better solutions, solutions that are shaped by the gospel rather than just a pure principle of retribution. We can help one another not just to resolve the presenting issue, but as Paul shows us again and again in the first Corinthians, to address some of the underlying sins that have led to it. It's really striking that um, legal uh, thinkers, high and uh, well-accomplished legal legal thinkers, recognize uh, the place of churches to do this. So I came across this quote from the American Supreme Court Justice Warren Berger, who in 1982 said this about what was going on in America, and it happens over here as well. He says, one reason our courts have become overburdened is that Americans are increasingly turning to the courts for relief from a range of personal distresses and anxieties, remedies for personal wrongs that were once considered the responsibility of institutions other than the courts are now boldly asserted as legal entitlements the courts have been expected to fill. And the courts have been expected to fill a void created by the decline of church, family, and neighborhood unity. So because we're not resolving these things together in families, in the church, and indeed in neighborhoods, people are looking in other places. And God has made the church wise enough to help in these kinds of situations. And so for those reasons, we should be willing to seek a resolution for these kinds of disputes within the family of God. But also, if Paul is directing us to look for help within the church, that must also mean that if we are asked to help somebody else who is in a conflict, we should be willing to help if asked. If two people came to us and said, we have a dispute that we've tried to work out together, please can you help us? We should be willing to try to help them. Having the word of God, having the wisdom that comes from the Spirit, and seeking to work for good. Peacemaker Ministries is a Christian organization that was set up in America by a man called Ken Sandy. Ken had previously worked as a lawyer, but moved out of that profession and set up this ministry because he was so saddened to see how many Christians were coming to him and saying, I want to sue another Christian. He said, this can't be right. God's word speaks about how we can resolve these situations. And so knowing what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 6 and what's another passage of scripture as well about conflict resolution, he set up an organization to help equip Christians to deal with conflict in a biblical way. He has a book called The Peacemaker, and it's a great resource if you want to think further about this area. So the first reason why we shouldn't take those civil disputes with one another over minor matters into court is because God has equipped us to deal with these things in the church. That's the first thing. The second thing we come to is in verses 6 to 8, our second point, where Paul tells them, You are a family of believers. You're a family of believers, and therefore it's wrong to pursue um, what they're doing. Now Paul makes a key point 
about the nature of the local church. The church is unlike anything else in the world. And so when the scriptures teach us about the nature of the church, we find a number of different illustrations and pictures about what the church is like to build up a fully biblical picture of what the church is. So, so sometimes Paul uses a picture of the church as a body, and that's used elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. Uh, we heard in our reading of 1 Peter, if I recall rightly, this idea of the church being a building. Also the idea of a church being a priesthood of God's people, and they're all important pictures of who we are as God's people. But here in this passage, Paul wants to press home that the church is a family. Now, why does he do that? Well, he brings it out really clearly in the language he uses to speak about what's going on, just to show how serious that is. So if you look down at verse 6, he says, But instead, one brother takes another to court. Now, in the original, in the Greek, the word brother is repeated for emphasis. So it's one brother takes another brother to court. He's using family language to drive home their identity as a family. And then if you jump down to verse 8, you find something very similar. He says, instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. And all the family language that Paul is using here reminds us of our family identity. And that is why to take these disputes into a courtroom is a defeat. Because once a biological family has come to the point of needing to take their disagreements into a courtroom, well then, they've ceased to function as a family, haven't they? It's a defeat in that sense. They've lost, in the words of Paul, because the family has broken down. And it's the same with the church. When you get to this point, it's a loss in that sense. Now, now Paul presses home this, this family picture and the way that we should value relationships even more strongly in verse 7, where he makes the point that we should value our relationships together more than our material possessions. So he's saying that it would be better for you to come out as one who has suffered a loss rather than to pursue a solution through the courts. Because in family life, Relationships matter more than possessions. Family love is of much greater value than gaining a full compensation of any loss. And we all know that in going to court, there is relational cost. And Paul is saying that cost is far higher. It's a price not worth paying, even if you're going to get some financial compensation for what has happened. Now, I was helped this week um, in reading about this and thinking about this passage by one author who made the really important point that Paul isn't saying this because he wants the church to hide their problems from the world. The church is made up of washed, sanctified, justified sinners. And our world knows that, doesn't it? The world is good at noticing the sins of Christians. The issue is that when we take these things into the courts, 
we are failing to show the transforming power of the gospel for our lives together. What the world needs to see is Christians forgiving and loving each other, showing that living together as a church family means that we work out these things in a different way. That's what we're called to show. Not that we never fall out or we never sin against each other, but rather that we love each other so much that we are willing to make it right and we're willing to forgive without needing to go before a civil court. Isn't it striking that Jesus' words in John 13, he doesn't say, the world will know that you are my disciples if you are perfect. He says, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love each other. And we're called, friends, to demonstrate that transforming power of the love of God in our hearts worked out towards one another in how we deal with these things. That's the challenge. So it's wrong to bring a lawsuit because we are a family. It's wrong to bring a lawsuit because we're equipped to help each other in the church together. But then thirdly and finally, it's wrong because you are transformed people. Our third point in verses 9 to 11, it's wrong because you are transformed people. Now, in this third reason, Paul takes us to the heart of the transformation that comes about by God's work of the new creation in every believer. And his third reason here is that this is wrong because they are new people. And to go about life in the way they're going about it is is how they lived before they knew the Lord. And he's saying, you've been changed, you've been transformed, don't live in this way. Now, how does he make this argument? Let's trace it through. It's important to see, first of all, the link between verse 8 and verse 9. Because in verse 8, Paul says that in suing one another, they were doing wrong. And then verse 9, he expands that idea of wrong to wrongdoers. And he says, wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God. So wrongdoing, which includes suing one another is, Paul says, a characteristic of an unchanged person. It belongs to the old person, the one who has not been changed through faith in Jesus Christ. But you, he says, you are a new person. You have been born again by the Spirit of God. And to draw this out and really bring it home, Paul there lists in verses 9 and 10 the major sins that characterize Corinth. And perhaps as you read that list, we would recognize that they're the major sins that characterize most cultures. Sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, theft, greed, drunkenness, slander, swindling and lying. And Paul is saying that people who live in these ways without repentance are not members of the kingdom of God. That's the key. Those whose lives are characterized by these things without repentance are not members of God's kingdom. But then we come to verse 11, which is the key verse in this section. Because there with those opening words, he says, 
And that is what some of you were. Now, hearing that list might be a sad reminder of their past life, but the past tense is so important there in that phrase, isn't it? He says, that is what some of you were. And the kind of past tense that Paul uses for that word were points to the fact that these sins were an ongoing pattern for their lives in the past. Those sins were so frequent that they were part of their identity. But then something happened in the past that means that they are no longer defined by those things. That means they are new. That means they are not what they were, but they are new people. And what has happened? Well, he continues in verse 11. But you were washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But you were sanctified, made holy through the the perfect life, the imputed righteousness of Christ given to you. That's the great exchange, isn't it? That when we come to faith in Jesus, our sin is given to Christ by faith. It's passed to him and he bears the punishment we deserve. And then by faith, his perfect life is given to us. We receive that righteousness of Christ in that sense. And so we are sanctified. We are washed. And the result of those two things is you are justified. That is a a legal term, how appropriate that Paul calls upon a legal term here. And he says that in the courtroom of heaven, you are given that legal standing of not guilty. The blessings that belong to them and to us if our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means, Paul says, that you are no longer characterized by how you once lived. Your identity is not found in how you You lived in the past and those sins you committed. But instead, your identity is in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are new people. So live like new people. It's the same truth, isn't it, that Paul proclaimed in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, where he says, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. It's the same truth that led John Newton, the slave trader, who lived his life hurting men and women and children horribly as a slave trader, yet came to know the grace of God in the middle of the storm. And God saved him. And what did he write when he wrote these words? I'm not what I ought to be. Ah, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I hate what is evil, and I would cling to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon, I shall put off mortality, and with mortality, all sin and imperfection. Yet, I am not what I ought to be, nor am I what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be. But I can truly say, I am not what I once was. A slave to sin and to Satan. And he says, you can join with the apostle at knowledge. By the grace of God, I am what I am. That's a glorious truth, friends, of verse 11. And the Corinthians had forgotten it. They'd forgotten who they were in Christ. Paul is saying, you are different. You are new. 
So live in that way. How often is it that we make the same mistake? We forget who we are. That's the third reason why suing one another is wrong. It's wrong because that's what an unchanged, untransformed person does. And that's not you if you're a Christian. But friends, if there ever was a case of a specific problem in a church bringing us to a principle with wide application, is it not this? Because in that verse, verse 11, Paul has just summarized the key to Christian living. He's told us how we can go on in the Lord, recognizing who we are and living in a way that is, that is in keeping with that. He's teaching us that the Christian life isn't about making yourself acceptable to God, but rather living in a way that is in keeping with your present acceptance in Jesus Christ. It is that we are not called. We are not called to be in order that we might become, but rather to be who we already are in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's Christian living in a nutshell. That's the Christian life. And friends, as I close, I'm going to make two applications. The first application is to anyone here who doesn't know the Lord, and you're not a Christian, we're delighted you're with us here this evening. Well, can I just say to you, that many people get this the wrong way around when they hear about Christianity. We think that we need to try and wash ourselves. We think that we need to try and sanctify ourselves to even justify ourselves before God. And so we try harder and harder, and we try and put our lives in order, and we think, that's going to make me a Christian. It doesn't work, friends. Maybe you know someone who has a story like me. My story is at 16 years old, I heard about the Lord Jesus. I knew I was a sinner. I knew that one day I would die and I would have to face God. And then I thought, I've got to sort my life out and it will all be okay. I spent two weeks thinking that was what I should be doing. Let me say it's not a long time, but it's a, it's a long time to live in that, trying to make yourself right with God. And it's a burden to put on your backs. You can't do it. The gospel says to you that you are a sinner. You're right about that. God's word says to you, yes, eternity is before you. You're right about that. But the gospel declares to you the best news in all the world, that what you cannot do, God has done. Because Jesus Christ came. He died on the cross for those who would trust him by faith. He lived a perfect life for those who would trust him by faith. And God says you can have that as a gift if you will believe. That's the gospel. Have you trusted in Christ? Don't try and make yourself right for God. Instead, trust him by faith and know forgiveness. And then, friends, if you are here and you are a Christian, I wonder, is verse 11 written on your heart. I hope it is. I hope it is. There are some verses in Scripture that are particularly helpful to us as believers, and verse 11 is one of them. Because every time Satan comes and challenges us of the things that we have done, what do we say? We say, that is what I was. 
but I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. We rejoice, we rejoice that we have been washed and sanctified and justified. And then, what do we do? We seek to live as one who has been changed. We seek to live as one who has been made right through the Lord Jesus, who by God's grace is a new creation. We seek to grow in holiness. We seek to turn from sin. But we do it all in service to him because we love him, because he has saved us, because he calls us to holiness, and because we have that identity by faith. So friends, may verse 11 be precious to us all and may God help us to live each day in light of it. Our God and our Father, how we thank you that your word tells us how we can be right with you. Thank you for the provision of a saviour who has come to wash us, who has come to sanctify us, who has come to justify us before the God of heaven. And Lord, what grace, what kindness we have known, what provision in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, would you help us to live all of our lives in light of that reality? Forgive us, we pray, when we have sought to make ourselves acceptable. Help us, we pray, to rejoice in that standing in Jesus and then to strive with all the strength that you provide by your Spirit to live in holiness each day for your glory. Help us, we pray, to work that out in our relationships with one another. May we pursue peace. May we value that family love. And Father God, Uh, Would you help us in situations where we need to speak to others and where we need to be willing to help one another to have the grace and strength to do that and equip us, we pray, to minister to each other. So seal your word to our hearts and use it for great good, we ask, because we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.